Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to Farm Equipment's podcast series, Our Dealer Story, which dives into farm equipment dealers and their unique stories. In today's episode, editor-publisher Mike Lassiter sits down with Eric Mason of Utah's Mason Machinery in Denver, just prior to Eric's board meeting with the Far West Equipment Dealers Association. That's not a good way to run your business. If you're running your business on trying to play defense, then you're uh, running it the wrong way. You have to look at what your business needs and what your customer base needs. Don't think that you should sign it for that reason. I think you should sign it because it makes sense. That was Eric explaining how Mason insistence on doing what's right for his dealership and not acting in reaction to manufacturer's demands or whatever the next dealer over might be doing. Eric shares a lot in this conversation, including how his grandfather got an Alice Chalmers dealership by raising his hand at a local gas station, which he would successfully run for many years out of Hilmer and Riva's garage, how his dad, Alan, left a high-level position and tossed in all his chips for the family business in the mid-1980s, the hole the Masons had dug for themselves during an earlier chapter of turning and burning, and how a switch to a new business software showed a problem that could have been fatal to the business if it had remained unnoticed. Before we get rolling, thanks to our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading-edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. So here we go, the Our Dealer Story conversation with Eric Mason of Mason Machinery. Yeah, we're Mason Machinery. We're located in central Utah, which is 150 miles south of Salt Lake City. That's our main location. We have two locations. Our second location we opened up in 2011 in a little, well, it's a suburb of Salt Lake City called Springville. Yeah, we're in our eighth year there. It's been going well. It's a smaller operation in Springville, but we have about seven employees there. And in our main location, we have approximately 23. And we serve the agricultural and the construction landscaper type of uh, customer base. Our main crops there are alfalfa. 90% of the crops that are raised there is alfalfa hay. It's good protein hay. They uh, send a lot of the crops that we do to California, to New Mexico, Texas, or export it there because of the the high protein for the dairy farms. There's also grain corn and silage corn raised there, as well as some uh, different grains that are harvested. So it's a neat little operation, neat area in Utah because it's there's a lot of mountains there. It's a mountain-based state. A lot of the state's not even farmable because of all the vast national parks and the and the mountains and stuff, but all the little valleys and all the beautiful communities that that you drive into there's all these neat uh, farming and uh, farming communities that we get to deal with that are humble people so we're we're pretty fortunate the the customer base they are raising the alfalfa to sell it to dairy operations a lot of guys do raise the alfalfa and sell it, export it, but uh, there is several people that are cow calf operators that uh, raise their own they have their own operation with their own cow-calf, and then they raise their hay to feed it and uh, keep it. So yeah, we have a mixture of both. And how's that end of the business doing here in, in 2019? Actually quite well. At the end of 2018, uh, we sell a, a line of mixers called Supreme, and we sold like eight feeders in the last three months of the year, just because that business took off so well for those cow-calf guys, and it went really well. That end of the business is 
doing well. The, everybody wants the calf prices to come back up, but they are doing well enough that uh, people are still buying equipment. Um, we're seeing a huge increase right now in the start of 2019 in our cells because of the moisture. Uh, we live out in a natural desert, and last year we was in a phenomenal drought. We ran out of water uh, at the end of June, and a lot of farmers didn't even get a third and fourth cutting, which they normally would. But this year we was blessed with a lot of snow in the winter. We had a lot of spring rain, and the reservoirs are full. Uh, there's water running everywhere. <laughs> we had a lot of rain the last two months. And there's a lot of optimism in the market. In that regard, people are buying equipment. So it's, it's been a really good year so far. That, that's good to hear. I'm in uh, Wisconsin. You know, we have a lot of small dairies. It's interesting to hear that, you know, out here, you're, you're in a different part of agriculture that's doing pretty well and looks pretty good for the, the next few years, I take it. Would, would the outlook be fairly solid at this point? It should be. I mean, um, we look at the feeder hay prices because that's what people focus on when they sell their hay. They look at feeder hay prices, which is hay quality that didn't quite meet dairy standards. And then they look at the dairy hay and those prices look really well. They look really good. So the optimism is up. There's always the worry right now that the tariffs and the, our administration is playing with the market and it's uh, hurting the, you know, the trade wars is, has hurt the dairy market, especially when it come to that NAFTA agreement between Canada and Mexico. We had a lot of that dry milk, a lot of powdered milk that was going to Mexico that stalled out for a little bit. So a lot of our bigger dairies, because we have some bigger dairies in our area too, they were pretty uh, upset. And then a lot of, because let's just face it, the dairymen have been struggling for the last five or six years. I mean. They get a little bit of a bump and then it just drops back down for a while. So that's been kind of a worrisome thing is people talk about that tariffs and they talk about the trade wars a little bit. But as far as the overall economy of the ag, I think it's uh, on an upswing for us in Utah. I really do. You had mentioned uh, the Supreme. Well, we've had them since uh, probably since 1989. We've sold them consistently, but some reason we had quite a spike in sales in that product line last year with the feeders because of, I would attribute it to we, we had such a drought that the farmers couldn't take their animals out on the rangeland for the winter mm -hmm. and they couldn't take them out to the desert because there's no range grass out there it was just yeah. it was burned up there's just nothing there yeah. so they had to keep them home had to feed more and so they had to have better feeders to to mix the rations and they had to mix different commodities together. So I think it really helped that way for us. Maybe jump into the history of the business. You know, your dad could share this history, but I like also your third generation, correct? Yes. So that you've heard the stories passed down and you know some of those things that really got get in your head that make you think about the business and what was grandfather told you, dad told you, all that kind of thing. But start with the, the broad history picture on the company. Yeah, so we, uh, we uh, started our business. Mason Machinery was started by Hilmer Mason, who is my grandfather, in 1948, out of his home in his garage. It's quite a story because my grandfather was a farmer. He was a beet farmer. They had a sugar beet factory there in our valley, and he'd raise sugar beets, and he had a sugar beet topper. He'd also do alfalfa as well. But 
he always liked Alice Chalmers, and Alice Chalmers was just a good tractor to him. And, and he was sitting at the service station one day, and uh, there was a Alice Chalmers rep that come around named Don Courtney and walked into the store and said, is there anybody here that wants to sell a good tractor? And everybody just sat there, and anybody at all. And my grandfather finally raised his hand and said, I'll sell them for you. So he took grandmother's car out of the garage and took his car out of the garage and put an AC sign above his garage and, and uh, started fixing tractors in his garage and selling them. And, uh, and he'd take a new one out to the field and demo it and use it. And um, that's how it started. And it, it eventually evolved to, he built a little one bay cinder block building down by the highway in the 70s. And uh, my grandmother and him were the only ones that ran it. And he would, go out and farm, he had to still farm. So my grandmother would sit at the store and if somebody come in needing something, then she'd hurry and run the few miles out <laughs> to the farm and yeah. grab him and bring him in and he would fix him up with a service repair or else he would find him apart. And How unique was that back in the late 40s to have set up a dealership in, in a garage out this way? I think that was pretty unique. I, I don't think they would just start putting AC signs up on anybody's garage. I, I think my I think Don Courtney, the rep, had a good feeling about Helmer Mason. And all I can tell you is my grandfather's a genuine man. He his word is gold. And uh, I I think Alice Chalmers felt something when they met Helmer and and they knew that they could make something work there. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was very common yeah. to do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But uh, they was kind of a tag team. She was a cute grandma. I really, uh, they're both passed away at this point, and I miss them dearly. But uh, they was running that business, and it got to the point where it was growing, and uh, he just couldn't handle it by himself anymore. And my father uh, wanted to be independent, so he went on his own and went to work at a coal mine. He was up there for probably 10 years, and he was really successful. That your dad's name is Alan? Alan, yes. Alan is my father, and he was up this coal mine. He was there 10 years, and, and he was really progressing. He was making really good money, and he was a foreman, a boss. And my grandfather grabbed him one day and had one of those father-son talks and said, I feel like Mace Machinery can be successful, but I can't do it on my own. I, I, I'm at the edge of my limit. I need your help. And my father come to a crossroads. He had to give up a lifestyle that he was used to. And uh, he was making probably six figures back in the 80s, which is pretty good money. And he'd have to go back to making significantly less to come back and help build this company. And uh, he went home and thought about it and prayed about it and thought, you know, this is the, I I need to come back. I need to help my father. So he, left the company up there, Coastal Energy, and he sold his stocks, his shares. And with those shares, he built the new building and bought the land, built this new building. And just a real generous thing he did. And it was a nice building. It's one we're still in today, actually. And we've expanded onto it three times. But at that point, um, my father is just one of those die-hard workers, and I, I, I view him as my hero, and I want to work like him. He would still work at the mine on a graveyard shift, and then he would get off at 8 in the morning and go to the shop, and he'd work. 
and he'd go out in the field and he would service tractors and he would fix wind rowers and he would fix balers and then he would come back and sell stuff at the store and then he would go home and sleep for two hours and then go back to work at the coal mine for a while. Wow. And he probably only got two or three hours of sleep for a couple of years and just trying to make that transition. And But he was building a customer base and uh, that work ethic, I don't, you just don't see that anymore. So you put up a new building in 84 and then your, your dad joined full-time in 85, Is, do I have that right? Yeah, so that's the building he built with his uh, his shares. He he cashed his uh, stocks out of that coal mine. Yeah, and built that new building from for him and my grandpa in in '84. Yeah, now I was I was fairly young at that time too. My my dad started his business in '81, which to make a major investment in career change and all that. It, I mean, it almost can't be a worse time <laughs> a worse time to to take that risk than. Early eighties, right? Yeah, that's that's why, you know, when they built that new store and all that stuff was happening, uh my dad still says he says, What am I doing leaving the coal mine with this kind of pay? <laughs> <laughs> building a new building and look at the economy and the ag economy right now and the interest rates, but he had faith. He had faith that it would be okay. Those are fascinating stories to me that I, I feel like our generation, our kids' generation needs to know the risk and the, the chips that were thrown on the table and just how there there was no way out. You mm -hmm. just had to, had to make it work and figure out how to make it work, which you know you, you mentioned earlier, some of that is, it seems absent today, generations later. Yeah, there's not a lot of blind faith in these, these uh, the generation you see today, it's uh, the work ethic's not there and the blind faith, and I think that uh, we're lacking in a lot of those values that you've seen back in that second generation of my father in the 80s and the 70s. It's, it's, uh, I wish that we've seen some of those attributes today. There's a work ethic that is non-existent and I, the I sacrifices he made with his kids and with, I didn't see him very much, but I knew what he was doing. I knew, but it got to the point, if I wanted to see him and I knew he was going out because he always went out on these calls to go help people i just jump in his truck as an eight-year-old boy, and I'd say, where are you going? I want to go with you. So yeah. I'd take off, and I just love watching him work on those balers and work on those tractors, and it just impressed me, his customer relation skills. Over the years, he built a big clientele, and that business started building exponentially. So in the mid-'80s, uh, Alice Chalmers started having financial issues, and so that's when Deutz Alice Deutz Farr came in and bought the Alice Chalmers brand. My father wasn't real keen about that. He uh, he was actually at an, uh, a meeting for uh, for Alice Chalmers and when they announced this, and he says, you can't turn this tractor green. You can't do this. This is not gonna work. We have to keep the legacy orange color. And he was following one of the VPs out of the room in that meeting in Georgia. And, that guy finally turned around and looked at him and said, Mr. Mason, if you're that unhappy, he said, I suggest you go home and cancel your dealership. So he says, well, that was a reality check for me that I just need to go home and go to work. It doesn't matter what color I sell, I need to go to work. It's just that work ethic that he talked about. So he did. And in 1989... So he didn't, didn't cancel the contract? No, no, he didn't. But in 1989, um, a dealer down the street uh, closed up uh, that had the Ford New Holland brand. And they come to us and said, 
are you guys interested in Ford New Holland? We said, where do we sign? Mm -hmm. And so he, we signed that on pretty immediately. And then obviously Agco took back over, ended up buying Massey Ferguson, Heston. So we got those brands. We got Massey Ferguson, Heston in the early 90s. And uh, everything progressed that way. So we had quite a few lines of equipment. We, we even ended up signing MacDon windrowers and everybody would ask my father, why did you uh, sign so many different types of manufacturers? And why did you, why did you think it was necessary to just take on everything that come your way? And he says, well, he says, the way I look at it is if I signed everybody and, and everybody decided to leave me at some point, maybe I'll have one thing left to sell. So I just like to have a diversity of, uh, of things to sell to people. So it worked out well. Um, we still are Massey Ferguson and New Holland today in both stores. It's been a good brand for us. Uh, we've really had a good relationship with both, with both uh, manufacturers. Uh, obviously you have your highs and lows throughout the years, but uh, we've made it work. I'm Jack Semlicko of Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. If you want to be more successful in precision ag sales, service, and support, join us for the annual Precision Farming Dealer Summit, co-located with the National No-Tillage Conference. Check out more information at precisionsummit.com. And now back to Mike and the Our Dealer Story podcast. I started in the business back in early 90s when I was a teenager. I went down and I'd work at the parts department. And I worked there quite a bit after school, after football practice. Sometimes they had to drag me down there, but because uh, mm -hmm. I was a kid and I wanted to play. But I, I enjoyed being there. I enjoyed being at the business and helping customers at the counter. Um, I did that and then I ended up going to college and uh, at Utah State University into the, the ag division there in the mechanics degree. Come back and I went into the service department and I, uh, my dad looked at me one day and, and, and he sat down and we had one of those father-son talks and I remember doing that with him in, in the living room and he said, son, you'll never get rich doing this. But he says, I want you here at the business. There's a good living to be made here. I think you can really enjoy it and you can raise a good family doing what I do. And I said, Dad, I believe that. So I took his advice, and then he looked at me at the end of that conversation. He says, but I'm not going to hand it to you. I want you to earn it. He says, I want you to go through the, the departments, and I want you to understand how this business works. So that's why I did the parts department. I came back from college and went into service. I was a shop technician. I rebuilt engines, did transmissions, and then I ended up being a, a road technician. I went on the road and did service calls. Really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed interacting with the customers. Getting to know them personally, getting to know their operation, and just being on the road and seeing people. So that was nice. And then eventually I went into the sales department after that, after about six years, and started selling equipment. And uh, I love the selling. I still love it today. I love that relationship aspect with the customer. 
And uh, I think that selling is more than just selling a piece of equipment. Selling is not only selling yourself and selling your business, but uh, you're selling the customer something he needs that can make himself more profitable. That it's just not a one-time sell, but it's a I, I view it as a big relationship. You know, uh, let's let's put together an equipment buying strategy that makes sense for you. Let's roll something out incrementally and let's and let's do this so it makes sense for your taxes so that was something that really intrigued me to help customers in that respect too so finally in 2010 my father come to me and i could tell that he was growing frustrated and uh he looked at me and says i need you to start running the operations of the business because i'll be honest with you eric i'm getting tired of these guys i'm getting tired of the manufacturers <laughs> and all the pressures they're putting on me. Because one of these days, I'm afraid I'm gonna tell them to send their trucks in and load up all their stuff and go home. And I was like, okay, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Before you do that, let me try to, let me handle the front end stuff. And, and he was pretty relieved. He, he's a great man, but he, uh, he loves to just service stuff. He's still in the shop today. If you go find him at the, at the store in Mason Machinery, He's in the back uh, working on an engine, working on a transmission, mentoring those mechanics, mm -hmm. and that's exactly where he needs to be because yeah. that's what he enjoys. And so I get the privilege of being up front, dealing with all the manufacturers and all the representatives, and, and I took that role and I said, okay, I'll take the management role. I thought, man, I'm going to make more money and I'm going to get more time off and life's gonna be easy. And after about six months or a year into that, I was like, I'm not making as much money. I don't have any time off. <laughs> I'm gonna call DCFS and I'm gonna turn my dad in for child abuse. Right. <laughs> so it was a lot different than what I thought it was gonna be. But uh, I wouldn't change it for the world because uh, I have a passion for this business. I have a passion for our business or our, our family legacy. It is Mason Machinery, and we just celebrated our 70th anniversary last year. We had a, a big party at our store. We gave away a tractor, uh, a lucky uh, customer. In the area of Delta, Utah, won it, a really deserving guy. It was really cool. We made a big to-do. We had the radio station come in. They did a live broadcast. We narrowed it down to 20 people and everybody got a key and uh, it was just a really mm -hmm. fun event and celebrating our 70th anniversary in business yeah. and with all the dealer consolidation going on and with all the mergers going on yeah we are just a two-store operation and we're still here mm -hmm. and we're still functioning well could that change one day it sure could i i don't have a crystal ball but uh, i'm happy with the legacy from what we've built so far since you started, did you handle an Alice Chalmers now Agco product from the get-go without interruption? Okay. Yeah, we've uh, had Agco, Alice Chalmers in one way or another all yeah. the way through. And so when you go, you're very active in the associations and you probably travel and get to dealers all over the place. What, as you get around, what, what do you find is really unique about your company that maybe other companies don't have? whatever that is. You know, every, every dealership has a story. Every That's a great question. You know, I, I have been around to a lot of businesses, 
not only with the Far West Equipment Dealers Association and being the chairman this year. Also, I've been part of a Spader 20 group for about 20 years now. And we go around to a lot of dealerships. And I've seen some similar dealerships as ours. But I think what makes ours unique is uh, probably the family that we have in our business. We have a lot of family. And we have a lot of close-knit employees that feel like family. And uh, I think our customer base feels that. I, I really don't have a good answer for you on that one. But that's uh, the thing that I can think of. Is there more family besides, do you have brothers and sisters or cousins or others involved in the business? Yeah, there's, uh, I have an older sister that is a service writer there, um, Rachel. My brother-in-law who's married to another sister is the service manager named Dusty. And uh, I think that's it. Me and my dad, my brother-in-law and my sister. And then we have a lot of my nieces and nephews that come help during the summer months when school's out mm -hmm. and I have four daughters myself and uh, three of them come help in the business during the summer so mm -hmm. it's kind of fun to be around them yeah do they like hanging out at the dealership uh, I think they like being around me because yeah. I get working those late hours too and I think they like to be around me and I uh, don't know if they necessarily like to be around the business all the time yeah but yeah. Uh, they like to be around their dad yeah but that's nice. That's that's even better, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we learn from our mistakes, right? In this business, and what would be your best mistake, or that the business had made that left a lasting imprint on how the future is operated? Um, we had quite a shakeup in 2013. Yeah, we was on the verge of maybe not making it. We had some processes that were broken. So I think that was probably the best mistake we made is uh, we changed business systems at that point, went to a DIS business system, found out that our accounting system was pretty broken and uh, we had some issues we had to resolve. And as we've we come together as a group and we discussed some things that were broke, it has made us a better company today for it. We have so many better processes now, so many better follow-up procedures, and so many checks and balances that work that we didn't have before. Mm. And it was because of that problem we had in 2013 that uh, we had bad processes. We just had loose processes. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of accountability because we had a growth pattern um, in the 2000s, you know, probably from 2005 to 2011. Um, we grew exponentially. I, I don't know what it was. The John Deere dealer down the street was struggling pretty hard. Um, the other case dealer was struggling pretty hard and it seemed like everybody was coming to us. And so as it, as it compounded, we just ran hard and mm -hmm. said, you know what, let's just sell hard and sell fast and we'll just catch up later. And as we did, we had a lot of loose processes and there's a story my dad once told me that he was pretty proud of uh, the banker come over and talk to him one day in the 80s. I said, Alan, tell me how you're doing. He goes, oh man, we're doing good. Look at this. We sold this much equipment. You know, we've done this. Look how much I've sold this many tractors, this many balers. And, and we're, just, we're just rolling in it. And the banker looked at him and, and my dad said, I'll never forget this. He said, Alan, you're doing great, but don't ever forget. 
you can sell yourself into bankruptcy if you don't have some good checks and balances. Mm -hmm. You got to watch your trades. You got to watch your uh, everything that you're doing. And so the checks and balances is is key that uh, if you don't have those in place, that it will take you to a point to where you turn around one day and you're like, man, this has gotten out of control. It's loose. Mm -hmm. And now we've got to tie it all back up together. And that's kind of the point we got to. We had a lot of loose processes and I think we tied it back together and we got it back running down the straight and narrow, mm -hmm. but it was uh, the best mistake we made because we caught it before it was too late, but it was a pretty scary few years there trying yeah. to get that back in shape. These blessing moments or what have you, if you, if you delayed your business system analysis and investment by another year, that problem could have been a year worse at that point, right? Yeah, it just keeps snowballing and keeps compounding the problem. Was it an inventory issue primarily? Did it just end up taking on too much inventory during that burn? Yeah, we were burn? turning and burning and we were taking on a lot of uh, used inventory and uh, we were overvaluing the used inventory and uh, we were just doing what we could to get every deal. And, you know, the salesman mentality, we had three or four salesmen you know, they were flexing our muscles, we're not gonna lose a deal, and there wasn't good checks and balances there. Like, hey, wait a minute, what is that piece really worth? Do you have four prospects for it? Is it good business to take that on trade? Have you done your homework on it? Okay, now it's got a birth date. A year later, it's still sitting here, and the market's gonna bear this much, but we have this much in it. Now we got to send it to auction and we're losing 20 grand, we're losing 50 grand. And most of it was an inventory issue, yes. Yeah. And it's because we were out of control with our, our valuations and, and not having good checks and balances there. Mm -hmm. And there were some other issues as well, but it was all comes down to accountability, checks and balances, and having good processes in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was our best mistake we made. It was having that reality check hit you in the face and knowing that, uh, and I could feel it coming and I could see it coming. And I just pulled my dad aside and said, dad, we, we got to put, we got to pump the brakes here for a minute. We got to do something here. And uh, he agreed. And so we all regrouped and, uh, you know, we actually uh, shrunk our business back a little bit the last three years, just trying to regroup and make sure we're in the right business model. Mm -hmm. we, we, we don't want to be smaller than we need to be, but we don't want to be bigger than we, than we can handle. Mm -hmm. So we took a big scope and we took a big hard look at where we're at. And now our used inventory um, five years ago was, was four and a half million dollars. Well, today it's one and a half. Um, mm -hmm. Our new inventory five years ago was nine million. Today it's five. Mm -hmm and we do a forecasting. So we'll, uh, we'll put out there in this model, we build a spreadsheet that says, okay, and it has these formulas in it. Let's plug in each category. This is what we need. This is what we should order. This is what we should be doing. And then we have a constant pipeline coming in. If you listen to the manufacturers, they have their own set of order writing agendas they want you to order. Mm -hmm. and it, they have these carrots out there. And if you order, we'll give you, ex you know, extensions. 
that's a dangerous path. You have to really run your business the way you're, you see fit. You can't do it any other way. You have to look at what your needs are, what your used equipment inventory works for you, and also what new equipment you should be ordering, not necessarily off your manufacturer's su suggestions, but what does your business need and what does your model look like? Mm -hmm. And that's what we come to and it's really worked out really well the last few years for us. What sort of revenue level is? Um, right now we're running at uh, $14 million a year. We, we actually used to be up around $20 million, but uh, we decided that 14 is a, a sustainable place for us right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually it, shrunk some people back and like I said, shrunk the inventory and I think things are good. It was, is that one of those examples that you can be more profitable by scaling back your revenue? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, we actually found several places where we could uh, save money as far as expenses um, and scale back to, you know, there's an old model and I, I've been going to Spader companies for their consulting services for years now, but I went to John Spader's Total Management One workshop once and I, it, it hit me during his session where he, he said, he used an example of a salesman saying, don't worry boss, don't worry boss, I know I'm only at a 5% margin boss, but I'm gonna sell more, I'm gonna work harder and sell more boss. Why sell at a 5% margin and sell more when you can sell at a 12 or 15% margin and sell smarter and still make the same amount or more? and not have to work yourself into the ground. Yeah, we want to sell volume. Yeah, we want to have as much of our product out in the field as possible, but we have to be profitable. Mm. You know, this, uh, this model of a race to the bottom with the margin wars, um, it just doesn't work. You know, and there's some dealers that get caught up into it. And I, and I understand uh, there's some mega dealers, some uh, big, organizations that have multi-stores that probably have some flexibility to get some of those deals because you need that market share but um, we've made a conscious effort to be profitable and we want to make money on, on every deal not a tremendous amount but a fair amount that we can stay in business. Do you expect that uh, next five ten years you'll be at two stores or will you need to you know with the way the business is moving are you going to need to expand or What's your kind of longer-term vision? Uh, it's funny you ask that. Um, in five to ten years, I envision us being bigger than that. I envision us being more three or four. Um, we've already been approached to do more, but we it's all about timing. Mm -hmm. And uh, opening that second store just about killed me. I yeah. don't know how I did. <laughs> People's yeah. the key. Yeah. You can open up 50 stores, but if you don't have the right people, people's your key. It's been a struggle trying to find the right people, and I think I got some really good people right now. But yeah, I think uh, we're uh, very interested in continuing to grow Mason Machinery. We want to get bigger, grow the business, and I can see us doing a few more stores. We're a family-owned business. I'm I'm second generation. Went to an event a couple weeks ago in Chicago, and we talked about the people element and where you, where are these people going to come from? We need to drive our businesses. And one speaker had said, "Well, I'll tell you." This deal I put together a year ago, I bought the, I bought the people. The people were the best part of the acquisition here. Hmm. That uh, that was, which I thought was thought was interesting. That 
we're wondering where these people are going to come from and sometimes you need the acquisition gives you access to the talent you need. Is that a f fair statement or? I think so. Yeah, because yeah, we've been trying to hire for a few positions for even six months now and right now the hiring market is pretty bare. It's hard to find good people. Mm -hmm. So even in that acquisition market, if you can get good talent through acquisition, it's probably the most valuable part of that acquisition mm -hmm. is the people part of it. I agree with that. We'll get back to the story of Mason Machinery in just a moment, but first a word about HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. Now back to the Our Dealer Story interview with Eric Mason of Mason Machinery. What do you think was the, the main difference in your, your tenure as leading this company than your dad and, and grandfather? I guess I'll phrase it this way. I've heard that the stories, and I do a lot of succession planning kind of writing, that there's a founder type entrepreneur who can get it off the ground as a vision and can rally the people and get it going. And then there's the successor generations, in this case, your, your dad and then you. If you try to switch roles with them, it might not work. I imagine you're bringing a more management focus to running this enterprise than maybe the initial entrepreneur had to or the, or the early years, just the nature of how the, the life cycle of businesses, right? What's different about your chapter than, than theirs was? Um, to be quite frank with you, what they did was more of the mom and pop style business, which worked back then. You know, hey, we were going to do stuff off a handshake. The employees knew what they were supposed to do and they just did it. They would talk, they would interact at the business like they needed to, but there wasn't a lot of real organized structure. And uh, what I've found that I've had to do the last 10 years is really bear down and put together some real actionable strategies. And just like yesterday, I was in my business, I had a management meeting with all my head people. I get them in there, I have specific items we talk about, I have an agenda up on the screen, here's our key topics today, I want to stay focused, and I want to have action items when we're done. And. I tried to do these meetings when I first started 10 years ago and it's just like throwing it against the wall and then it just slides down and nothing happens. We talked about it, it was fun, but nothing ever happened. So what I found, and, and I think that's why my father grew pretty frustrated because the industry was changing, the people's mindsets were changing, employees were changing, and he couldn't quite relate to that. He's like, look, you have a job, just go do it. What's the problem? Just go do your job. Mm -hmm. But it's changing. The people's mentality is changing. Mindsets are changing. So I find what you have to do, what I've had to do differently, is I have to hold people more accountable. And I have to um, give people those performance reviews twice a year. Not just once, but a mid-season in July and then another one at the end of the year. Look, this is where you're at. This is how I feel you're doing. And then I have to hold people to a standard. Okay, this is what I expect from you. This is what I want done. Are you getting it done? Okay, here's our meeting agenda today. Here's the parts department topics. Here's where we're lacking. I see three deficiencies. I want to see these things remedied by our next meeting in 30 days. Mm -hmm. 
service department. I see these things that are really lacking. What's your thoughts? Okay, let's get some interaction. Okay, I, I see your point, but I, I think we're really needing to communicate better with the customer during the repair. Let's make some actionable items on this so that we can talk about them next month. So I'm more of a guy that's an action item guy mm. and uh, holding people accountable and asking for it to get done and not assuming that it's going to get done. And I think that's the biggest difference I've seen is asking for the action to get done and then following up constantly, mm -hmm. right. which, is, which is exhausting, but it has yeah. to be done. <laughs> right. Is this a, a business system that you you implemented or you come up with it on your own or this, this system of how you are running the business, is it? Um, I actually, as well, in 2013, hired a outside accounting group to come in and run my books called the Ascend Group. And uh, Ryan Gardner is one of the partners. He's actually become a really good friend of mine, but he still comes down once a week and we talk about business and our financials and we talk about uh, practices we're doing and then, but he's been a huge help too as far as helping me uh, with the business practices and then I'm always looking for cutting edge change. I really am. Um, I'm, uh, I actually hired New Holland to come in with their growing dealer profitability program. It cost me quite a bit of money, but what they do is they bring a team of people in and they interview all my employees. They, they call my customers hmm. and then they get my management team together and they say, okay, this is what the employees said. We ask these questions, this is what your customers are saying, and now let's talk about some deficiencies. And we've just, we're right in the middle of that right now. Mm. And it's very eye-opening what, what I'm finding from my employees and from my customers that they're calling. And they're helping me with uh, realizing I have to have some action items and some things that I need to keep following through with. and. So between this, uh, this firm I hired that does my books and also always looking for cutting edge programs like this growing deal dealer profitability that I signed up for, I think that's helped me with my management style. Mm -hmm. How long has that New Helen program been around? I think they've been doing it for a couple years now. Yeah. And they really focus on the after sales part of our business, which is the parts and service. They guarantee they can, after they're done with us, that they can help grow our parts and service business by 20%. Are you seeing that or is it too early to, in the process to? We're into it about four months now, and I, I don't think I can really measure it yet. Uh, probably by the end of the year, I hope to see a, a good measurable result on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. That sounds like an interesting program and they're putting some teeth in the helping their dealers do better, it sounds like. Well, it makes me feel good that they care and they want me to be more profitable, not just asking for a sale, not just asking for a market share. Mm -hmm. They're actually saying, look, if, if we know you can be healthy in your parts and service, then we know that your sales will come. Let's face it, if your customers trust your parts and service department, they're gonna buy equipment from you. Yeah. So I think it's pretty key that New Holland's focus on that, trying to help us get healthy. There would probably be some dealers who would be reluctant to do a program like that, to show warts and all to their, their major line. Would that 
had you seen any of that or heard any, any of that or not? What was your reaction to? I was resistant at first. They've, they've been asking me for about a year. At the end of the day, I said, I got to park my pride at the door. <laughs> it's not about pride. It's about, do we want Mace Machinery to get better? Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. I want us to get better. I always want us to grow, get better, and find new solutions to take, better take care of our customers. And that's what it's about. What worries you or has you concerned about the, the next 10 years for the business? What keeps me up at night? What, gets, what has me worried for the next 10 years? Making sure that I'm leading this company in the right direction to a growth pattern that is sustainable and profitable. I always worry that I'm doing the right thing and that I'm taking this company in the right direction. And I, I do lay awake at night asking myself, are you doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Are you bringing in the right programs? Are you uh, listening to the right people? Are you implementing the right processes? You know, I, we've had some customers leave us and we've had some come back and I always wonder why. And I've actually decided to take a drive and I took a drive and went to talk to a few of them that left and it was pretty hard conversations, but what it simply comes down to is relationships. You know, we don't feel like we had a relationship with you anymore, is what they say. And so I think that's the key is that I lay awake going, okay, how do I keep the relationships with my customers strong, leading this organization in a good, profitable manner, in a direction for growth? And so that's uh, probably what keeps me awake at night. Where do you gain the confidence that you need to address those things? Is it through your, this New Holland program or Spader Group or? Probably that peer group in Spader. We have 20 dealers there, all the way from John Deere dealers to Kubota to Case. And uh, we get together three times a year and really lean on each other. And then we also call each other outside of the meeting. And I had a dear friend in Wyoming named John Bunker, own Brown Company and he passed away of a brain tumor um, a few years back. And I, he's just the easiest guy to talk to. And there was days I was so frustrated, I just picked the phone up and said, John, what am I doing? Why can't I figure this out? I have these employees that won't do what they're supposed to, or this process isn't working. And, and he was just a great guy to rely on. And, and then one day he's gone. And it's just how precious life is, right? And so I have some other dealers now in that group. And, and obviously my father, I rely on him a lot. But uh, these programs, including that New Holland program, but mainly that Spader peer group, we really rely on each other a lot to get some of the questions we need answered. How old is your father? 64. 64. And what, how old are you? 42. 42. Okay. And he likes what he's doing. He's coming and he's working every day in the shop and he's there with you and... Yeah, he's, uh, I think he's happy. He gets pretty frustrated with wrong parts and not getting the right parts in the shop. But yeah. <laughs> I can't tell if he's happy or not. But yeah. <laughs> he enjoys what he does. He has a passion. And uh, he's a great man. He has a heart of gold as big as Texas. He'll do anything for anybody. And, and he enjoys what he does. I think he'll spend his last breath there at the dealership yeah yeah that's that's how my dad is too and i, I don't want him to 
he's down to three days a week, but I don't want him to go anywhere else because it keeps him young and yeah. And I don't, and I don't think he'd, he'd necessarily want it any other way. If they if they do quit, a lot of times they're gone mm -hmm. in a shorter time. You know, they need something to do, and uh, he's a great man. I, like I said, he's my hero. He's my mentor. I enjoy being around him. In fact, just recently, uh, I found myself not being able, I just have this business relationship with my father. Well, we just talk about business. Sometimes it's a strained conversation. It's about employees or a process, or sometimes we get heated with each other. And I looked at my wife and said, I've got to have a relationship with my father outside of this business. I do. So he has a passion for Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Really? This man loves to ride motorcycles, right? Seven, eight years ago, he said, my dream is one day that you'll get a bike and ride with me one day. And I just have these, had these young girls and I'm like, uh, I bought a bike last year or three months ago. Me and him just went on a ride last week. And it was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life. Yeah. because we stopped and got an ice cream and we sat there and just talked yeah. by this big lake and just talked about life mm -hmm. and talked a little bit about business but it was <laughs> it was nice to yeah. i'm going to do more of that with my father outside yeah. of the business yeah. because i need that come visit us in milwaukee and oh yeah that's the home of harley we're 10 minutes away from the factory are you yeah that's incredible yeah yeah, you should put that on the list. We'll the, have to ride our bikes out there. Yeah. <laughs> Every five years they do the big cele celebration. I mean, the city's taken over. It's it's cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to come out there. Yeah. Going back to the origins of the equipment dealer world, and a lot has changed in the business. It's changed in, you know, the farmers, the, the type of farming they're doing, the size, scope, how big they are. There's lots of changes all around us, but I'm, what I'm going to ask you is what hasn't changed since the '40s when the you know tractor started hitting. What are the the unchanging truths of what it takes to succeed in the the farm equipment business? Then I guess we'll part two of the question is what tomorrow looks like. Well, what hasn't changed is hard work and dedication. I mean. You still gotta get up before dawn, and you, these farmers still gotta get out and plant their crops. Still gotta put a lot of time in. Still the same process, putting that seed in the ground, getting the right fertilizer to it, the right water to it. Now, is there some new technology to help do that? Yeah, but that has not changed, and the values haven't changed, in my opinion. If you look at the farmer's values, the values are still there. Um, the one of of integrity and respect and uh, I think those if you look at the 40s or 50s even to today you know that American farmer they're they're doing more with less you know they don't have as much ground as they did back then yet we're still getting more yields getting more crop off of a smaller amount of acres so yeah I think that hasn't changed is that uh, the values are there um, the work, the mentality, the work ethic. But what is changing is how we get there and how we make it better with the technology. The technology is probably 
the single biggest driver in the industry right now. The automation, the intelligence that's coming into this farming industry, the autonomous tractors. I don't know if you've seen those, but these tractors that some of them don't even have a cab and they drive and the farmer's driving them from their home. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible that the technology with the GPS, the autonomous, and just the precision to this farming is making it so precise and so accurate that uh, that's the biggest change in the industry right now is, is watching that technology take over. So that's one of those really disruptive things on the, the dealer end, right? Because you can't do business like you did. You have to have that investment in that technology and those people. That's something that is really changing on the dealer end, would you say? Yeah, you have to really invest a lot of time and energy into uh, sending your people to get trained on this GPS and uh, automation laptops. These tractors have nine computers on them. That's what's really time consuming and that's why we're really fighting that right to repair bill that you've been, probably been seeing um, mm -hmm. across the country is that we as dealers really want the right to repair. We have a lot of money invested a lot of thousands of dollars tied up in technology to fix these machines and uh, we just don't want to give our equipment out to anybody just to go fix their own machine when we we should be a repair shop we mm -hmm. want the opportunity to make that revenue and i didn't mean to sidebar off into that no. right to repair but uh, um, that's that's probably the single biggest investment right now is we're personally spending thousands of dollars getting our people trained up constantly trained it's changing all the time in this new technology as that becomes more commonplace do you see any monumental changes in the what it takes to run a dealership in the next 10 to 20 years you know i talked to a few dealers about this and i think that uh, you see a lot of the multi-store the bigger dealers starting to change that way already because they can and uh, they are starting to change their whole business model because of the technology I think us smaller dealers can hold off for a while, but I think change is inevitable. The only thing constant in life is what change. Mm -hmm. So we have to always adapt, we have to always change. And yeah, I think that, I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but uh, this technology and this automation is only gonna get bigger and better. And I'm still trying to quite figure out how the dealer plugs into that because I have a worry one day that maybe they don't need a dealer, but I think they always will because of our service and because of our back-end support. Um, but uh, it's getting to the point now you can almost fix something through a remote laptop. It's just incredible the technology that's taken over. Thanks to Eric for sharing his story of Mason Machinery. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast series possible. I'd love to get your feedback on these interviews, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lestermedia.com. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. This will ensure you're alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Special thanks to Joe Kinsley of our multimedia department for putting this together for you. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of Our Dealer Stories.